Well, this morning, I'm really pleased to announce our guest speaker today. He's a really good friend of ours. Uh, Tony and Steph, they were with us toward the very beginning of City Light Church. They were really important, laying down the foundation for some of the things that we've been doing. Tony is uh, currently, he's a National Director of Strategic Partnering and Development. That's a long title, Tony, for Crew, uh, a specific arm of Crew, which is Epic movement, which is uh, focused on Asian Americans on college campuses. Tony lives in Washington, D.C. with his wife, Steph. Uh, They have three kids, just like myself. Tony's a good friend of ours. We're really uh, excited to have him come, and he's going to bring us the word. So, Tony? Wow, it really does feel amazing. Uh, Coming back to City Light, I just remembered, I just had a wellspring of feelings that have come up the past uh, 20 minutes, even. Like, John Gim, you've got a kid, man. What's up with that? So... Yeah, uh, every time I think about our time in Los Angeles, my wife and I always do remember City Light is one of the main highlights, you know, so we're really thankful that you guys are still very much active, and the Lord's doing some amazing work through you guys, so, um, <clears throat> yeah, as uh, Dennis said, we have three kids, and I lament not actually preparing a picture of my family, uh, because it's completely changed since we moved here. We have three children, we had a dog, it's, it's, it's completely reversed now, but, you know, I think like you at City Light, when we moved to Washington, D.C., we had a really big heart for the city. And we started to actually really love living in the city. You know, you experience culture, you experience food, you engage with people in a very distinct way. You know, there's something about living in close proximity with one another that's really dynamic, right? I get to take my kids, especially in the city of D.C., to dozens of free museums. Uh, We found out recently that Elizabeth Warren's actually one of our neighbors, you know, and then... To be bipartisan, you know, John Mc- I bumped into John, the late John McCain in a Texas barbecue across the street. It's a very different type of celebrity than you might bump into here. I get it. When we were living here, my wife, Steph, actually bumped into, within three months, John Cho, Bobby Lee, and Tony Hale from uh, Arrested Development. Um, it's a very different experience, I have to say, you know. But nonetheless, you just start intersecting with people in a very different way. It's really different from when I grew up as a suburban kid in Ohio that, you know, it forced me to make a lot of adjustments to my expectations. Especially in regards to now that I have three kids, a seven-year-old, a four-year-old, and a 20-month-old, you know, we had to think about, like, what does it look like for safety with our kids, right? I used to be able to unlock my, my, keep my car unlocked and keep stuff in there. No longer, right? Um, What about our kids' education? You know, how does that function if you're doing public school education versus, you know, things like that? There was this old, uh, uh, there was this old documentary called Waiting for Superman, and it was all about, you know, the corruption in kids' education, and it was actually all about D.C. So, um, you know, what about outdoor space? You know, I actually grew up hiking and, and being in the woods occasionally. There's no such thing in the city. I mean, we can call it the, the concrete jungle in some ways, you know. But more than that, I've been challenged my views on poverty and racism and classism, you know, and that recognizing that gentrification is a real thing, and I have no idea how to deal with that completely. I wrestle with it every day. You know, when you live in the city, you sort of expect things to go awry. Talk about cars. Our car got broken into twice in three months while we were picking up our kids from school. It was a 20-minute span, you know, and the thing is, the only thing that they took was our diaper bag. Of all the things to take, like for a parent of young kids, like when you lose, the, you know, moms, please attest to this, when you lose that diaper bag, 
There's so much stuff in there. It's like, would you at least just take my wallet, not my diaper bag? I would so appreciate that because I can cancel the credit cards, but I have to go back and get all the makeup, the diapers, the change of clothes. You know, oh my gosh, it was first world problems, I guess. I'm sorry. You know, we used to live in Lincoln Heights, which is just north of Chinatown. Uh, I was walking my dog Rosie around our neighborhood, and you know, our Lincoln Heights. I, I, th- I don't know if it's changed too much, but you know, there, there's definitely been graffiti on the ground that's been crossed out by other graffiti. So if you know what that means, if you don't know, ask somebody else that doesn't know what that means. But you know, I'd walk around the street, and I remember a guy approached me on a BMX bike, and he said, "Hey, where do you live, man?" And I'm like, "Um, in the neighborhood." And he says, "Hey, okay." you watch out, because I'm coming to get you, right? And he just bikes off. And I was a little distracted, because I was on the phone. I'm like, what, what, what just happened? Did he just threaten me while I was walking my dog? You know? And I got home that day, and I remember thinking to myself, wow, it's going to be so great when we decide to move to Arcadia. So, you know, because, I mean, the school system is going to be so much better for, you know, and I didn't even have kids at the time, and so I was already thinking about that, right? I was like, I can't wait till we get a yard, you know, I can't wait till we just, like, spread out a little bit, that we can have, like, a, a garage, we can have, a, you know, a lawn, you know, we can feel safe in a front door and stuff. And, man, I just thought to myself, I really, I really love the American dream, right? And I've kind of projected a sense of what safety, community, and life is supposed to look like based on what I've designed for what is safe, you know? And it dawned on me, it's like, wow, God, do you really care for my comfort and safety? Or do I have to produce that on my own, right? Do you care about my kids' education? Or do I have to produce that on my own, with my own sensibilities, you know? Does God care about some of these really core issues of our comfort and our, our ability to raise our children? The thoughts that we have about what life is supposed to look like. I think we all kind of know the Sunday school answer. The answer is yes. But I think we don't always know that actually these issues are actually a mirror to our own hearts. And when we process, I, when we process the idea of safety or education, I think to myself, yeah, this is actually a reflection of my own selfishness, of my own desires, of my own desire for safety. When we read John 4, and this is the passage we're going to turn to today, I think it demonstrates this kind of messiness and this brokenness of our own hearts But how the brokenness and the messiness of what goes on is the key element to helping change communities. So it's only when we get confronted with these issues that we can actually begin the process of being part of changing our community. So if you guys can turn with me to John 4, I'm going to pray for us as we do this. Um, Go to your device or to your Bible. It's that thing with the flipping pages. We're going to pray and we're going to engage this passage together. So, God, I thank you that you love the messy and the broken, that you love the complex issues. I don't know how you do it, God, but you think a lot better than we do. But help us to engage what you're doing in the city of Los Angeles, in cities around the world, and what you're doing to change communities and lives. Please use City Light to be that what it is, a light to Los Angeles, God. We ask for your Holy Spirit to lead this time so that I might diminish and your Holy Spirit would be pronounced. In your name we pray, amen. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, 
And this is a really long story, but, you know, we're going to read this together, uh, first of all, and we're going to go through the whole passage. I, I broke this up in this section, so, uh, you know, we'll do, we'll do our best. Okay, so, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, it was his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And as he had passed through Samaria, so he became to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. What we don't recognize about this, this is very like bi- biographical, it's like, okay, Sychar, I don't know where that is, Samaria, fine. What we don't realize with this situation is that actually Jesus is, very, is making very unconventional and deliberate choices with his travel plans, okay? Sometimes we just drive through communities when you're driving, I have driven across country, we just choose a freeway that gets us the, clo- the you know, closest distance between two lines and we just take it, Right? Jesus is making some very deliberate detours and deliberate decisions with where he goes and what he does, okay? He's actually cutting through Samaria, which is technically a shortcut, but it's not the typical way that many Jews actually take. Samaria was a place where, if you wanted to, we just kind of avoided it, okay? I just recently watched the movie Green Book. Anybody seen that movie? It's all about where black people can go in the South to stay, and they avoid other places to go. This is Jesus actually going against the green book and deliberately going to places where it's not usually where he's supposed to go, okay? So his disciples are buying food, which is also a little bit strange in Samaria. They usually bring it because they don't want to interact. That Jews and Samaritans, okay, they had this history that wasn't so great, okay? Samaritans were actually part when, when Israel split into two parts, okay? There was a southern and northern tribe. The southern tribe became what, we, what in this time, the Jews the Jewish people that were in Jerusalem, okay? And then the northern kingdom was Samaritans, and they got taken over by the Assyrians, so they ended up starting to intermix with the Assyrians, as well as some other groups. So now, Samaria and Israel, okay? Israel's here, Samaria's here. They don't necessarily like each other, okay? Because these people are sort of seen as like the half-breeds, the unclean. They, they, they do things really differently, Okay? Like, they worship in different locations. That's not a big deal, like, on face value. But in 128 BC, what actually occurred was they worship in this mountain called Mount Gerizim. And then the Jews worshiped in a temple in Jerusalem. But what happened was the people of Samaria at 128 BC ransacked the temple in Jerusalem. And so after that moment, you can imagine the upheaval and the dissonance between these two communities of, like, these are our enemies because they desecrated our space. They were supposed to be our brothers, but they desecrated who we are, our most sacred place. Not only that, you have a deliberate decision of Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman. Okay? Men and women at this time, especially in this case, they were, it, was diso- it was not okay for men to talk to a woman alone in public okay? or out there, much less a Samaritan woman who, because of a lot of these issues, was seen as actually unclean, okay? They were seen as a woman who was so unclean that they'd be seen as like they were in their menstrual cycle constantly, okay? 
So anything that she would touch, especially water, is seen as unclean. Okay? Not only that, Samaritan women normally fetch water in groups. So there's got to be some reason why she's doing this alone, that she's isolated. There's some sort of shame that's in, uh, that she's incurred that says, you can't do this in a bunch of other ladies, you go by yourself. Okay? But now Jesus approaches this lone woman in public who's unclean and says, give me water. These are very deliberate decisions that break from social norms, okay? So I think we've set up a lot of social constructs in our day and age, right? In our civilization here in, in the United States, you know, as an Asian American myself, I started to uncover kind of this mezzanine space between having a lot of privilege and also feeling completely powerless, okay? We, America has sort of set up this racial hierarchy that we've had for, for generations. In 1922, you know, you know, as an Asian American, by the way, it's not that I've even experienced mass incarceration or, or you know, considered any kind of target of being, you know, being a target of the Klan or anything like that. But in 1922, Takao Ozawa versus U.S. was a Supreme Court case. And this man was born in Japan, and he lived in the United States for 20 years. And he applied for naturalized citizenship. You know, and the only way to really do that, he actually applied within the demographics, and there was only two. It was either black or free white man. He's like, well... Which one do I choose? So he actually applied to be a free white man, okay? And this case went to the Supreme Court, okay? And what they ruled at that time was, you are ineligible to be a free white man, okay? So he was denied citizenship because of this. It was a, it was a vote, I think, of six to seven that this Japanese immigrant who came to the United States and lived here for 20 years was not truly a white man. Seven guys decided that, okay? So we've built a lot of our government based on this social hierarchy of there's a white free man, okay? And then they had to create these other designations for every other racial group or ethnic group. So it was saying that we are, I'm technically a mongoloid, so to speak, right? And then there was this order that was placed in front, okay? So how do we actually handle this kind of social construct? How do we engage that? How do we actually be a part of breaking those realms? See, Jesus just did that, even this very simple biographical data. He approached a woman who was unclean, who was seen as unclean in public. And he wanted to break these social constructs of just simply saying, I want to treat you with dignity as a person. I think my dad actually was the greatest example of this growing up. You know, he... As a non-Christian, he honestly put a lot of us in the church to shame. You know, he was always a very generous person. He gave to a lot of charities. He actually saw issues in our community, and he actually made change about it. We have a small, we had a small Asian American or Chinese American community in Cincinnati, and a lot of the senior citizens had no place to actually be in community. So he started the Council on Aging. It's this senior citizens club for Asian Americans in poverty, and he raised money for them. Before, before uh, in the 90s, Indonesia, Indonesian Muslims were persecuting Christians, were persecuting Chinese Christian churches. You know, it was some vicious things. And my dad heard about these atrocities as a non-believer and said, I want to advocate for these churches because they are dying and they are being killed on the streets. 
And the biggest reason why my dad didn't go to church is because the Chinese church in Cincinnati didn't say anything about it. The Chinese church in, in Cincinnati, I love this church, but it was a lack of engagement with real issues in this world. I think Jesus really does care about these situations, right? I think we want to care about these situations. But I think it's how would we live intentionally with our faith, that we can make intentional decisions to actually start to engage the social constructs that are in here. In Washington, D.C., there's an organization and coalition of churches called DC 127, and their mission is actually to adopt every, all the 1,200 kids in the foster care system. Not only that, they've also created programs for how do we engage at-risk parents who are really close to having to go to foster care. How do we give these parents respite? How do we give them time to actually be able to, to work on their marriage? How do, we actually take, how do we help supplement the education of their children? Okay? And I think that's the challenge for us as churchgoers, City Light. How do, we, how do we not disappear in the public sector? How do we not disappear from these issues? And where can our impact be felt? If, if City Light were to disappear, if any of our local churches were to dis- disappear, would anyone notice? Would your community notice? I think Jesus desires for us to engage. That's the challenge. In verse 9 through 15, starts off here, right? Well, the Samaritan woman's kind of questioning all this. She's like, you know, it's sort of a weird moment, right? The Samaritan woman said to him, How is that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to her, Sir... You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Uh, where, do you, where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, that he gave us this well and drank from, he, from it himself, as did his sons and livestock? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I will give him will be become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have come here to draw water. You see, again... This is another way that Jesus is defying convention. Because he's being able to tell this woman, it's not about living water. She's thinking in terms of, I've got to have this, 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 the physics of, how are you going to draw water from this well if you don't know how to do it? And, you know, like, I know how to do it. You, you don't. You know, it's not this physical, tangible thing that, that we're talking about. She's saying, no, there's this spiritual reality of living water that is really key and essential. That there's this eternal life thing that we need to talk about. And most people think eternal life is this idea and this notion of when I get to heaven, I'll get to like, like live forever and you know, be in a cloud with wings and wonderful, right? Actually, living eternal life is about when you read later in John, he says, this is eternal life that you may know him, the one and only son and him who have sent him. I'm paraphrasing, sorry. <laughs> but eternal life begins now when you know Jesus. I think it's easy for anyone unfamiliar with Jesus to question the nature that he offers, right? She doesn't have a framework for eternal life. She doesn't have a framework for living water. She thinks very naturalistically in this case, okay? I think it's really hard to link our real-world issues to the spiritual world, okay? My son Joel just turned seven, and for the past three years, past four years, he's actually become an expert negotiator. 
Um, when he was three, I think his favorite phrase was, how about this? I kid you not, every situation, he had a, he, he had a better idea, so to speak. But the problem was, sometimes he really did have a better idea than I did. And it was really scary, and I had to keep telling him, Joel, you're, I'm your dad, and I'm smarter than you. <laughs> Allegedly, Right? And it was, yeah, it was, it was, it's been aggravating, but it's been really fun, you know. Sometimes it bordered on manipulation, actually, but, you know, especially when he's fighting with his younger sister. Oh, man, she, he was able to, he'd able to talk his way out of anything. I think he's going to be the mayor someday. Um, but it's been a challenge, you know, Steph and I have had, you know, that we're faced with when we look at how this situation can lead itself to a spiritual application, okay? Besides learning how to say, hey, can you guys learn how to share? We had to really be able to say, you know, what do you think Jesus would do in your situation, you know? That led to even deeper questions of, you know, why do you think it's so hard to share? Or most of the times, it's, I don't know, but occasionally, very few occasions, there were moments that there were God moments that he would just tell me, it's too hard to do this. You know, I really try my best and I don't know how. And every time I try, I can't do it. And those moments were the most critical moments. If I hadn't gone through the hundred times of him saying, I don't know, I don't know, but there were those moments that he would actually feel it and say, I don't think I can do this. And that's when I was able to say, this is why we need Jesus. This is why we need his living water. And this is why we will pray to him. Can Can we learn how to pray to him? And one of the joys that I've had with my kids is actually learning how to pray with my kids. I was not a very prayer warrior, and I'm not still. But I'll tell you something, you know, I was like, well, got kids, I'm Christian, I guess I ought to teach them how to pray or something. So one thing we should do is pray before going to bed. Like, fine, I can rotely pray for, you know, let's see, who should we pray for? Um, let's pray for grandma and grandpa. You know, we call them ama uncle because, you know, they're not Christians, so let's just pray for them, right? And then as time went on, you know, my parents visited uh, in D.C. a couple months ago, and my son nudges me on the, on the shoulder at the dinner table. He says, Dad, Dad. Tell, can you tell Amma Uncle about Jesus? Because I want, I want them to have me in heaven. You know, it shocked the heck out of me. I'm like, this kid is more spiritual than I. You know? And there's something about even when we do something rotely that God wants to use for our faithfulness. When we can attach our real life situations to the living water, to the spiritual life. What, do we, what if we ask God, about how our decisions would affect eternity. What would that be like for us? What would change in our career decisions or whether we spend time praying or binging Netflix? Not that Netflix isn't completely unspiritual. That's another topic altogether. But maybe there's a deeper reason behind missing that promotion at work. Or maybe you felt betrayed by a friend. Or when a car was broken into, you know. My wife said to me after that happened the first time, said, we really need to pray for this person. You know, I think the question that we need to ask ourselves is, how do we insert the hope of eternal life of Christ in our real-life situations? In verse 16, the Samaritan woman, you know, we dig deeper into her life. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right. In saying, I have no husband. For if you had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband, what you have said is true. And the woman said to him, 
Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you said that in Jerusalem it's a place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither this mountain nor Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Your worship that you, that you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. You see, to, to truly grasp the depth of what Jesus is proposing, he's bringing it really home. He's bringing it home. That We're talking about the social constructs, and then we're talking about you know, day-to-day living. Now he's saying, I want your heart. He's not just talking about the physical, moral. It's not just physical. It's a moral, it's emotional, it's spiritual. He's concerned with the truth of the heart. See, so she uses theology to distract him a little bit, right? And she talked about the, even the societal issues of like, well, we chose Mount Gerizim, you chose the temple, and I'm sure that stuff about 128 BC with like the, the desecration and the separation of Jew, Samaritan and Jews, and he's, she's bringing up the antagonism again of, of Jews versus, Gen, uh, of Jews versus uh, uh, the Samaritans, and they're talking about Mount Gerizim, and Jesus cuts through all of that. He cuts through all of it to speak to her heart. He says, true worship is in spirit and in truth. He says, Jews and Samaritans, you don't have the complete truth. That history that you have, that's not what's supposed to be. Here's the real worship. It doesn't matter if you're on Mount Gerizim or if you're in the temple. It doesn't matter what happened in the past. It's all about Jesus. It's all about worshiping Jesus the person. Not about the place, not about the history. But sometimes it's easy to kind of use these like cultural religio, religiosity constructs to, to keep us from God. Sometimes I use the phrase, have you ever tried to use God to run from God? Right? Like imagine yourself when you're reading your Bible in your quiet time, right? And this happens to me all the time. I read my Bible, but inevitably my mind wanders, right? Anybody have their minds wander when they do read the Bible? No? Oh, wow, you guys are spiritual. This is amazing. But sometimes I'll be like, okay, my mind's wandering onto work, or the stress of, you know, my kids, or thinking about an argument I had with my wife, or perhaps I'm just thinking about, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, watching Law & Order SVU a lot for some reason. I'm not sure why, but it's happening. My mind wanders, right? It could be on almost anything. And what do you do as the good Christian person? We say, get back into the Word. Come on, concentrate. Stop thinking about those things. Engage the Word of God right now. Come on, stop. Pray harder. Do better, right? But what if God was actually in those thoughts? What if God was actually saying, what about law and order? feels better than me right now? What about work makes a bigger impression on your life than me right now? And what if I actually stayed in that thought and said, wow, God, you're kind of revealing, you're just kind of revealing hard truth about me. And this sucks. Let me go back to the Bible because I know that that works for me. Let me just try to concentrate on the Bible and let me get away from the hard thoughts that are actually in my heart. Sometimes we, it's easy to use God to run from God. 
I think if we increase our religiosity and our prayer, that'll distract me from the fact that I don't like to pray. Maybe that'll distract me from actually engaging the difficult things of being a Christian and the hardships that I've felt in my past. And one of the things about parenting for me is that it's a mirror of my dysfunction. Jesus is really asking us to be honest with ourselves. I think that's what this is. He's bringing up the truth to this woman because he wants her to be honest with herself. She doesn't want, he, he's cutting through all the distractions. He's cutting through all of the, the, the smoke screens. And he says, look, there's something going on with your relationship with men. And I think God brings that to the surface for all of us. But I think it's so hard to want to engage. I think that's the call. Maybe there's something happening right now where a feeling is being brought up that you just don't want to deal with it. I think Jesus does. It's a call for us to say, even when we feel inadequate, or maybe you feel ashamed, or maybe you feel pain, maybe you just feel numb. Maybe Jesus wants to engage those feelings with you so you can bring up the truth of your heart. The call is for us to not run, not get rid of these feelings. I think it's an invitation. It's an invitation that Jesus is deliberately taking to meet with you and engage with you deeper. I think a lot of times it's not seen as something that's very spiritual. Actually, this is probably the most spiritual thing. This is the deepest spirituality that you can have. And you see, so Jesus reveals himself to be the savior of the world because of that. That he digs from the social constructs to a day-to-day feeling, now to the heart. And he says, I'm saving all of that. In verse 25, the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He intentionally defies convention on multiple levels and is for the sole purpose of seeing people know him. To see people in their lives saved, their souls saved. He came to fulfill not only to be our personal savior, but to actually bring peace, to actually cut through all those social issues. That antagonistic relationship of the Jews and the Samaritans, he's saying the gospel is bigger than that. He's bringing peace between a lowly, isolated woman who has been in sin and is separated from, all, from her, her community. And he's saying, I'm using your story. I'm using your story to change lives. That these conventions, they don't have to be present in my, my new economy. I am the Messiah, he says. I think of a student that we interact with when I, as I work with crew. Uh, Stephen is, uh, has been... His whole life has been teaching him that he's unlovable and unimportant. He's actually a refugee from the Vietnam War, or a son of a, Vietnam, uh, a refugee from the Vietnam War. His pa- parents are divorced, both alcoholic. He was in child protective services, and they took him to orphanages all through the age of five. Later, he was adopted by his aunt and told by his cousins, you didn't come here to live as a person, but as a slave. And running away to live life in the streets because it was a better option in his senior year of high school, he made no plans to live beyond the age of 23, assuming he'd be dead in a ditch somewhere. You know, he was living life recklessly. He was giving his life to sex and, and drugs and alcohol. And, you know, his internal, war, his internal world was now manifest in his external world. Well, he was invited to one of our campus meetings 
on a local campus in Los Angeles. And he sat down and the speaker said something that just struck him. And he said, I will not leave you as orphans, Jesus says. I will come to you. Those are words that he'd never heard before. Those were words that he needed to heal, he, to hear, to heal. Long story short, his life was never the same. He continued to be in our meetings and he prayed to receive Jesus into his life. And now he's engaging in his faith. He's actually wanting to grow and he's actually sharing the gospel with other people. See, Jesus wants to engage our bad. You don't have to have a story as dramatic as, as Stephen, but don't run because those are moments when he can redeem. There's real redemption when we feel ashamed or hurt or unlovable. And the message to you is that he knows you. He's not shocked by these things. He wants to tell you all things. He is the Messiah. Verses 27 to 38, you know, I'm not going to be able to read through all of it because it's a long passage, but right now the, the, the disciples see all this going down. And they're like, what the heck is happening? Okay? They're marveled that he's talking to this woman. What's going on? They're in disbelief of, like, Jesus would do all this convention breaking. But that we all have a part in the transformation, okay? Towards the end of the passage, he talks about how one might sow, one might reap, another might reap. We all have a part to play in God's economy when it comes to this. Maybe you're not the person that's going to be the leader of the social change. Maybe you're the person that's actually going to lead someone to Jesus. Or maybe you're the person that actually sows seeds in a person's life. When we talk about evangelism in our organization, we recognize that it's not about bringing someone to conversion. It's about bringing someone one step closer to Jesus. And as you keep doing that, I guarantee you, by the law of averages, eventually you're going to see someone know Jesus. You're going to see someone pray the prayer to receive Jesus Christ. You're going to see real change in that Jesus initiated this cross-cultural, justice-oriented relationship that's now going to continue in a spiritual legacy. In verse 39, it says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And there he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It's, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So we recognize this, the Samaritan's woman's life would never be the same and she went on to save her whole town. This isolated, lowly person who is unclean shares her story that Jesus basically told her. And it's ref- it reflected her. See, we all have a story to tell. We all have a story of brokenness and hurt. We all have a story of joy that God wants to use to change your community. That when you hear the story of other people, whether they're homeless or marginalized, that there's a story in there that Jesus wants to redeem. I want to leave you with four questions and a story. But here's what I think that we all have a testimony to present. So I leave you with these four questions first. I said, what social construct do you see Jesus convicting you to intersect? The second question is, what part of your life do you need to see spiritually in light of eternity? And what part of your heart needs the raw truth that Jesus is your Messiah and your Deliverer? And ultimately, what can your story do to change the lives of others? I talked about my dad earlier. And, you know, 
when I, as I've always tried to share the gospel with my dad, I always said, well, you do all this great stuff, dad, but you know what? It's still selfish because Jesus, you know, you need Jesus. You absolutely need Jesus. And that's not untrue, right? But I always kind of created this adversarial relationship between like his philanthropy and God's desire. Like it wasn't good enough, you know? And last year, as I was saying, I was teaching my, my son and my daughter how to pray, and we'd been praying this very rote prayer of like, you know, we pray that Ama Ang Gong would know Jesus and, you know, come to a saving faith. And, it, and in one of those times, I actually had this moment last year when I said to myself, I think I've been, I've been praying all wrong about my dad. What if my dad's philanthropy was actually the Holy Spirit given to him? Like the Holy Spirit was operating on my dad this whole time and giving him these desires for giving. What if he was actually active and he actually pursuing my dad through the way he loved? And when I thought about this, I prayed with my dad. And so it, it, it's funny because as he's heard my story and I've always denied his donations because he always felt like I was begging all the time. You know, missionaries do that. Not really. But he always thought it was begging. So I said, he was like, let me just pay your whole way. I'm like, no, 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 no. I really don't want your money because I want to prove to you that God is real. And so for 15 years, I've been in ministry. God has supplied for our means. And he's shared, I've, I've been able to share about what we do, about how we're leading, not just Asian Americans now, I actually do a lot with other ethnic minority communities, about how we're trying to show that the identity they have is important to God. That your ethnicity is made by God. And my dad kept hearing this and says, you know, in his philanthropic mind, I'm going to give to what you're doing. I like what you're doing. You know, my brother's a, lo- a corporate lawyer and I'm, you know, I'm a missionary. And he's like, what? And so he started actually being a huge donor to our ministry. <laughs> and, I'm, you know, and so he's been coming to, he started coming to some fun development events and he started to see millionaires, Christian millionaires, actually put their money where their mouth is. They gave millions of dollars to the work of Jesus Christ and the kingdom work. And after one of these events back in April, he emails me and he says, you know, I kind of, I think I could give this Christian thing a try. Like, how do you know how do you respond to an email like that, right? It's like, how does that work? Is it, it's, not like a, it's not like a 30-day guarantee money back type deal, right? It's like, what, what are you talking about? So I call him, you know, and I try to understand a little bit more about what he's saying and, you know, I told him, like, I'm so glad you want to do this, but, you know, I, I share the gospel a little bit more with him, and I think one of the main questions he had, and this goes back to, like, how do we link real life to spiritual life? He said, you know, I don't get why I need to have a relationship with Jesus. Like, if I turned out okay, why can't I just do that and just be okay with that, right? And I just thought to my, about my relationship with my dad, and I said, Dad, you know, I've been alive for 38 years, and you think I turned out okay, right? I said, yeah. Like, whew, good, okay. This illustration is going to go somewhere, good. Like, Dad, what if, I, what if I never talked to you for those 38 years? What if I, after high school, just decided I don't want to talk to you ever again? And we never engaged how, and we never, we ne- you never taught me how to do mathematics. What if we never shared about my relationships what if we were never talked about how hard it's been, you know, with our lives? What if we never engaged at all? Sure, I turned out fine, but what kind of loss would have that been for you and me if that happened? 
And he said, yeah, I get what you're, I get what you're saying. Because that's what Jesus feels with us. When we decide to go our own way, that's what Jesus feels with us. That it's a huge loss for him, and it's a gigantic loss for us. My dad said at that point, okay, I think I can pray this. And so he accepted Jesus Christ into his heart last April. um, Because of a fundraising event. And because he saw people who were about what Jesus was about, to see that we can actually make real change in society on a day-to-day level and in our hearts. So I commission you guys as we pray together to know how the Lord can change lives through you. Let's pray. I thank you that, Lord, you are in the business of saving souls that you're in the business of breaking social conventions, that you are here to actually bring a biblical knowledge of you and the saving grace of Jesus Christ, that you have the ability to bring real change in this world, and that you could use our most innate desires to make, not just be able to bring people to a salvation, yeah, but you can change the world. Please use us. Help us know our place where that can occur. In your name. Amen.